Welcome to the eighth episode of Taking Back the Narrative. I am thrilled and honored to feature Rabbi Dr. Elia Abadi on today's topic, Jews and Muslims, Can the Abraham Accords Transcend History? Rabbi Abadi holds three very impressive titles currently. He's the Senior Rabbi, Jewish Council of the Emirates, Sharei Mizra, Rabbi, Association of Gulf Jewish Communities, and Chairman, Council of Sephardic Sages. Welcome, Rabbi Abadi. So a little bit of a background of how you and I had even met Rabbi Abadi. So we have a mutual connection, uh, Rebecca Harari, who is, I have no other words to describe her other than a powerhouse uh, here in America within the Jewish community, within the Sephardic community, uh, within the political community overall. And I would like to also add within the Zionism community in America. And so Rebecca had started a uh, Jewish leadership group uh, just shy of when the pandemic hit. And that is how I connected with you. And, you know, it, it was a sizable group of people, but I was very impressed with you and your, you know, sage wisdom and your take on current affairs and and politics and, and the changing uh, situation in the Middle East. You were the first one to really rally the efforts of what was happening even before the Abraham Accords were, were announced. So I want to thank you and really for opening my eyes on the Jewish-Muslim relationships, especially in the Gulf. And my recent trip to Dubai was spearheaded by your impressive efforts. So I want to say thank you so much for tuning me into uh, you know everything that's been going on in the Gulf and with Israel and Hopefully, we will share all of the exciting updates with with our audience today. So again, thank you. And I would like you to talk about a little bit more about your family background. Um, It's a fascinating one. Uh, It spans continents and uh, Jewish subcultural backgrounds. So take it away to Rabbi Abadi. So first of all, thank you very much, Laureen, for inviting me to appear on your podcast. And yes, it was great that uh, we met uh, a few years ago and we connected and that uh, we have now so much uh, uh, things in common in this region to speak about. So again, thank you very much. It's a pleasure and honor. My family, uh, we'll try and make a long story short. My family... um, Uh, were born in, my parents were born in Aleppo, Syria. They were descendants of uh, Spanish uh, exilarchs that that they they were exiled, you know, in the expulsion of uh, 1492 from Spain. Somehow went through Southern Europe. They ended up in the Ottoman Empire and then Syria. Uh, They had to escape. They were persecuted at the heel of the partition plan vote on the 29th of November, 1947. For the next three days, they were called by the Arab League uh, Days of Rage uh, that took place in 10 Arab countries where Jewish communities lived. The Arab population mostly aided uh, aided by by government officials, by police, by security uh, services. They rose against their Jewish communities. They killed people, they uh, looted their businesses, they burned synagogues, um, they uh, entered into homes and mutilated people. 
And that happened, as I said, in 10, um, 10 Arab countries. Uh, the result of that was uh, almost over 1 million Jews in those 10 Arab countries uh, had to either escape, uh, were persecuted, were expelled, or were imprisoned in their country for decades after that. So Syria was that country that they rose against uh, the Jewish community. My parents lived right next door to the great synagogue in Aleppo. And my mother saw how they entered the synagogue. They burned the Torah scrolls, the books. They took up the rabbi. They dumped him into the street. And they started going into Jewish businesses. You would hear the screams, my mother tells me. And then the next building was where my mother was living. As she saw the, the mob climbing over the building to come into their, her house, she escaped with my three oldest siblings from the back door, never to return to that place. She escaped to Lebanon, where she settled. My father was going back and forth. He had escaped with her, but he had a business in Aleppo. They went back and forth until one day um, a government official caught him and told him, you know, we know that you have been uh, clandestinely uh, crossing the border to Lebanon illegally. I'm coming to arrest you tomorrow, uh, which my father understood that he needs to, uh, to disappear that night. That same night, he took a small attache case with him, went to the train station to take an over 10-hour trip to, to Lebanon from Syria. And the conductor knew him from before. He hid him in the a wagon of, uh, of the cattle and the cargo. And upon inspection on the Syrian border, as they reached, my father was almost caught. And at that time, if he was caught, he would be killed. The conductor would also would be killed. But thank God, the distraction took place by the conductor and um, he wasn't caught. He left the door open to the car. My father jumped in between the Syrian border and the Lebanese border into a ravine. It took him three hours to walk to get to my mother. Finally, he got there and they lived in Lebanon semi-tranquilly. Over 10 years to 12 years later, I was born in Lebanon. Uh, life was fine, tranquil, but, you know, we always kept very quiet, very under the table, so to speak, not, not very... Uh, uh, showy that we were Jews. The, the neighbors knew we were Jews. We went to synagogue, so that was not a problem. Until one day, um, one day uh, after September, uh, Black September, which was in September 1970, in which uh, you know there was a civil war in Jordan. Yasser Arafat and his guerrillas uh, rose against King Hussein at that time. King Hussein ended up expelling them. And uh, Lebanon was forced by the Arab League to accept Arafat and his guerrillas. They came to Lebanon. And from then on, life for Jews over there was precarious. There were, there were protests every week with Kalashnikovs, Khakis, you know, anti-Israel. And so the, the Jews felt very insecure. The Jews began leaving Lebanon in droves. And one morning uh, we woke up and uh, we saw the picture of my father and the other two rabbis in Lebanon, which formed what's known as the Beddin, the Jewish court in Lebanon, um, with a caption under that picture saying, these are the Zionist agents helping Israel. Uh, that photo was put in posters, in large posters in mosques. And he was printed in a magazine with an article saying how these rabbis are Zionist agents. You know, when you have your picture with a caption like this in an Arab country where Arafat and his guerrillas are there, it's basically 
an invitation and a target for assassination. So the rabbis hid in their home for three weeks. My father was one of them. And until the government kind of semi-assured them of protection. That day, my mother took the picture and the article. She sent it to Mexico, where my oldest brother was living by then. He had left the Lebanon for a new, the new world. And she told him, we need an asylum in, uh, in Mexico. If we don't have that, we might be killed. We, and, and, you know, we, you have to do something. Now, in Lebanon, we were refugees because my parents were Syrian refugees, Jewish Syrian refugees. Lebanon never gave citizenship to refugees, even though I was born there and many of my other siblings were born there. We were always refugees. So we did not have citizenship. We, of course, could not vote and we could not leave the country either because we did not have a passport. Uh, no country will, uh, will accept us because we were refugees, they will have to basically resettle us. So um, because my brother was living in Mexico, my father had sisters and cousins in Mexico. They basically had to ask us uh, and asked to ask Mexican government to accept us as refugees. The, the whole process was took six months. And um, the, the news came on pass, eve of Passover in Lebanon that uh, our papers are in order, we could emigrate to Mexico. Of course, that Passover became more than just uh, a celebrating freedom from Egypt, ancient Egypt, but celebrating freedom from Lebanon. Um, I grew up in Mexico City until the age of 18, and then um, at the age of actually 17, and then from 17, I um, uh, went to the United States to study uh, in a yeshiva and a seminary and also in a university. I wanted to become a, a doctor, a, phys a physician, medical doctor, but in Mexico I had to, they require us to study on Shabbat, on Saturdays uh, and on holidays, either do labs and tests and things. And I was not uh, ready to compromise my belief, my faith. Uh, my faith, uh, I know I'm a, I'm a, I keep the Sabbath and the holidays and so, but I found Yeshiva University in New York that uh, I could study medicine, I could study anything I want, and yet keep the Sabbath and the holidays. And that's what really brought me to, the, to New York. And once in New York, you know, you, you, you settled there. I studied, I, uh, not only I became a, a medical doctor, but I also became a rabbi. I did a master's in philosophy. I got married. At family and I settled there for there for several decades. And two years ago, I came here to uh, to the Emirates, as you know. But the story, if you want me to tell you what brought me here, uh, and we'll we'll get to that a little bit later. Thank you so okay. much for such a fascinating background history, and your parents are ultimate heroes for how they escaped and what pressure, what stress they had to go through. You know, we as Jews in the diaspora, you know, we're all descendants from, you know, from people who did what they could to escape. But, you know, your father was such a front facing personality like you described. So that that's just heroism on a whole other level. So thank you so much. So you talked right. a lot about the vitriol against Jews post, of, you know, during the time of the partition and post that. I also know that, you know, Jews were considered dinis in a lot of the Arab lands for, for centuries. So can you describe what, and you had also mentioned that, you know, some years in Lebanon, life was relatively quiet, right? Your neighbors knew that you were Jewish, but you and your family didn't really announce it too much. So what was life really like for Jews in Arab countries overall? 
for, for centuries um, in terms of demitude, right? Like how, how much of that really was second-class citizenship and how much of it was based on everyday life, if you can describe that a little bit more. Right. So, so historically, we know that the relationship between Islam and, uh, and Judaism or, or uh, Muslim societies and Jewish uh, communities really dates back to the Treaty of Omar. Uh, uh, you know, the Caliph Omar. The treaty with him was basically that the Jews are people of the book mm-hmm. and therefore they will not be forced to convert uh, into Islam uh, and therefore they could have their religious autonomy. Uh, at the exchange of what was known as dimitude or poll tax, they will have to pay, in a sense, per head a poll tax that the community would pay to the to the Muslim uh, uh, leader or to whoever the political leader of that region, that caliphate or that country. And that basically established the relationship between Jewish communities and the surrounding Arab and Muslim uh, communities. So uh, they fared uh, all depending uh, on who the leader was. If the leader was a benevolent leader, and the Jews did very well. They were part of society. They uh, they had their own private property. Uh, their faith was was protected. Uh, many of them were physicians to the caliph, uh, were finance ministers. Some of them were were um, were uh, even defense ministers in Spain and the Andalus uh, and the conquest. The Jews were pretty much at the forefront. They were commanders of the army, and so uh, it all depended on who the leader was. And then unfortunately, another leader might come uh, and, and be a little more, uh, uh, a little less lover of, of Jews. And so he mistreated the Jewish community in his country or in his region with the harsh uh, taxation, with the prohibiting them from working in certain professions, with prohibiting them from owning certain properties, and so it was really an up and down. There is no, uh, the graph is not always up or it's not always down. It goes up and down and up and down. And that really what, uh, what uh, characterizes 1400 years or 1500 years, you know, living uh, Jews and Muslims or Jews and Arabs in many of those countries. And some countries were better than others. And that's Again, what we want. All- it all depended on who the leader was at that time. And so just to add uh, for the audience, so it wasn't just Jews that were considered uh, second-class citizens, like the demitude, right? It was also Christians as well, just to That's add. Correct. Mm-hmm. That's correct. And, and also they fared as well or as bad as the Jews, depending on the leader. Some leaders may have loved the Jews more than the Christians, and some leaders may have loved the Christians more than the Jews. And some leaders did not love not, neither Christians nor Jews, or some loved both of them. And so their fate was also very similar to the Jews in that sense. And so that brings me to my next question. So were certain countries better um, than others towards Jews? Or like you said, was it only dependent on on the leadership? Well, it was mostly dependent on the leadership. Uh, And also in in, in the time, Lebanon, for example, when I was alive and even before that, from the time that Jews were in Lebanon, but most of the time there was peaceful uh, coexistence. There was respect. Uh, there might have been some skirmishes here and there between minorities, but uh, all in all, Lebanon was was um, 
was known as the, the Switzerland of the Middle East. The Jews lived, lived fine until the last several years. Uh, Morocco, for example, in the last several deca- decades, in the, since the grandfather of the present king, His, Maj- His Majesty, uh, they have been living really very, very well with no issues whatsoever. In fact, they're supported by the government. They're welcomed by the government. But before that, before the reign of the grandfather of the present king, uh, Morocco also, the fate of the Jews was equal to the fate of the Jews in any other Arab countries, up and down, depending on who, who the leader was. And it's interesting because I had read that some Muslim countries, like you mentioned, like allowed Jews to hold very high government positions we read about the Jews in Egypt and in Syria at some point. So was there something specific or special about those two countries or was it just the right time, the right ruler in charge? Usually any Arab country that had a period of enlightenment, mm-hmm. uh, the Jews fared well. And uh, in, in Egypt during the, uh, the kingdom of, of the King Farouk, mm-hmm. where uh, the culture was there, European society was there. Jews mostly did very, very well. Yes, many of them were members of government. Many of them were part of the art and culture leadership, leaders in business and the banking and import, export and in any area. Of course, once the, the king was deposed and Nasser took over, then the fate of the Jews deteriorated significantly. They were expelled, they were stripped of their citizenship, their property was taken away. And so uh, usually like that. And also when uh, European colonization of Arab countries took place, also the Jews fared much better because, um, again, European culture came, enlightenment came. There was at that time protection of of, uh, the human rights of the citizens, citizens. And so... That period was also a better period for the Jews than other times before colonization, depending, again, on the leader of uh, that time and at that moment and in that place. And that's so true. Right now, I'm doing a lot of research on the Ottoman Empire and, you know, 400 year span. And it really is like an up and down flow chart, depending on the ruler, how they treated the Jews. So it, it's interesting. And, and same thing also for, you know, my, I'm 92% Ashkenaz and it's the same thing also under the Russian empire, depending on the Tsar, that's how the Jewish fate was sealed. So you mentioned Morocco and you had said that the, especially now uh, under their leadership, the pro-Jewish sentiment comes from the top, but, you know, I've heard also that it's not exactly shared that widely within the within the community you know the goodwill towards jews so i'd love to talk a little bit more about cold peace versus normalization and so two countries that come to mind immediately in terms of cold peace currently is jordan and egypt so i'd like to pose a question to you why are those two countries stuck in this cold peace when for example egypt in my opinion, does more against Hamas than even Israel, right? They're flooding the tunnels. They built a steel wall. They are just as anti-Hamas, probably, right? Just as anti-Hamas as Israel is. Um, We all know that um, Mubarak even had Mossad help to overthrow Morsi and, you know, install Sisi. So there's this great regional cooperation, right? Against a common enemy, but that yet, it has not really spread to their population in terms of normalization. 
And Jordan benefits a lot from Israel. And yet we see so much anti-Semitism coming from Jordan. So if you could maybe expand a little bit more on why the cold peace there. Right. So uh, I'm not a politician, but I could speak from observing exactly uh, from your own from your own observation for having lived in in in, in the middle east mm-hmm. and from trying to understand the culture there mm-hmm. so the cold peace in jordan and egypt is coldly calculated if i may use that pun uh it's not an accident it's mm-hmm. um it's calculated by the leaders starting from mubarak um mubarak uh was a person who unfortunately uh, only cared about his own position, his own power, his own wealth, and the wealth of his family and of of his very, very close friends. And so he never educated his population to live in peace with Israel. He never changed the educational material that students were getting in school. They were still getting anti-Semitic teaching, anti-Israel teaching because he wanted to use Israel always as a punching bag, right? Or or as the common outside enemy of Egypt. So he could shore up his power, uh, power base. Um, And so whenever it was convenient for him, of course, he's friendly with Israel. The Mossad helped him, the security services of Israel helped him, the United States uh, money helped him to shore his government and his position. And whenever he felt shaky internally because either the Muslim Brotherhood or the population, because he never taught them, he never instilled love of Israel or at least tolerance and coexistence. And whenever he felt shaky, then he immediately pulled the card against Israel and blamed Israel for everything as the outside enemy. And therefore the whole population need to rally to their president against a common enemy. The same I can say is about the King of Jordan, the present King of Jordan. Uh, he uses the same tactics. Now I understand the King of Jordan, may his position may be even more precarious than what uh, Mubarak was. And I could say almost for sure that his stability is thanks to Israeli security services and intelligence services but uh, he uses the same card to maintain his power. Now his population is 70% Palestinian Arabs. And so he may have a more precarious situation, but of course, Israel is always the punching bag, that outside enemy uh, that will show up support of his, uh, of, his, uh, of his position. And that's why those are cold pieces. They have not changed the, the, the educational material either. And so all the new generations, they grow up hating Israel and hating the Jews. But I have to say that Egypt now under President al-Sisi, who I met personally, uh, and we discussed issue like that, uh, things are changing. They have already changed the educational materials in their school. So we expect that the next generation will be more friendly with Israel and more willing to, to, to make, you know, to live in peace with Israel. He has also permitted a series on television showing uh, Jewish families that used to live in Egypt in good light, in a positive light. And so he's trying to create the the environment more propitious to to maintain that peace and to enhance that peace. But I was uh, surprised and and, um, sadly shocked 
last year when the singer uh, Muhammad Ramadan, the Egyptian singer and artist, uh, was photographed with uh, an Israeli singer here in Dubai, and he was basically ostracized in Egypt. He was expelled uh, from his um, you know, group of artists and, and the newspapers chastised him. That shows that that piece is still cold and we need to, uh, to work hard to warm it up, so to speak. And so you believe that education is the path forward for normalization, right? So it's, it's in a way what Saudi Arabia has been doing and, and we'll get a little bit more in depth on Saudi Arabia later on in our talk. But I, I believe, like from my perspective, that them eliminating anti-Semitic tropes in their textbooks has really helped, right? They got rid of anti-Semitism in their popular culture. And so you had mentioned that Egypt is doing that. Do you see any path forward at all for Jordan to um, work on their anti-Semitic teachings at all? Well, I, I believe that uh, pressure need to be need to be uh, bore uh, on on Jordan either by the United States or by Israel itself or by uh, the countries in the region here who have normalized the relation with Israel and basically try to push convince Jordan that they need to change that if they want to really make sure to be part of the growing trend and the growing number of countries who have normalization with Israel. So that would that should be told to Jordan, uh, uh, advised, suggested very strongly that it's in their benefit to, to, to change that entire environment of hate towards Israel and towards the Jews. And is there a chance for the Jordanian opposition to perhaps take over once the current King of Jordan passes away? Do you see that happening? Um, there's always a chance, but I think it's a very, very small chance. Right. Very small chance right. to happen. I, because Jordan, there is some section of the Jordanian society that is opening up, uh, especially with, uh, with business treaties with Israel and the UAE, uh, common projects that they're all working together. So that society is opening up. And so I believe that they might, that chance is still exists, but it's very, very small to, uh, to oppose any normalization with Israel. So I believe that, but again, with changing the educational system with the educational material, that will certainly enhance and speed up that normalization. And so you had a warm, warm piece and not a cold one. And so to follow up, you had said that when that Egyptian uh, musician took a picture with that Israeli artist in Dubai, and that yes. caused such a backlash back in Egypt, could the Egyptian government step in and counter those measures at all? Or is it just too vast of a problem that even the government can't, can't do anything about it at this moment? Well, I think the government can. Mm -hmm. The question is if it was in their best interest or not. Uh, and I think they uh, they must have uh, calculated that it's something uh, so uh, temporary, it will pass and it will blow away and there's no need to even uh, create any uh, friction with that. And so they probably let it happen and, and, it, and it passed. But if we focus on that moment, it is a shameful moment that, exactly. it, that it happened. Exactly. So... You know, of course, like, you know, one of the reasons, uh, one of the many reasons, like, you know, you currently are in Dubai is because of the Abraham Accords. 
And so a country very much in the news right now, Iran, Iran is a unifier, you know, in terms of this is, you know, of course, uh, from, from an analytical point of view. So Iran was one of the unifying forces to bring Israel and the Gulf countries together, right, to sign the Abraham Accords, because it was in everyone's best interest to work together against the common enemy rather than work separately. Uh, could you uh, maybe expand on that a little bit more and how much significance do you personally see Iran as an issue in bringing about the Abraham Accords? So I really don't believe that Iran was the sole unifier cause uh, oh, that, okay. that brought that brought together uh, Israel and the countries that signed the Abraham Accords. Mm-hmm. Iran may have been or is one of them, one of the several or of the many causes. In my conversations with people here in the region, mm-hmm. um, I get a much broader picture mm-hmm. of reasons why for the Abraham Accords. Reason I think number one and most important one is that uh, the leaders of this region and the people of this region, um, they disagree vehemently with radical Islam. Mm -hmm. Uh, They do not believe that Islam is a a jihadist religion, but that Islam is a peaceful uh, religion uh, with the name of it, Islam from the word Salam, peace. And therefore they feel very badly misrepresented by that section of Muslims who are radical, who are fanatics, and who who uh, only believe in in uh, jihadist um, uh, mo- you know movements and jihadist activities. So number one reason is they want to change that view uh, to show that no, that Islam is a moderate religion, is a religion of peace, and the words of the Prophet and in the Quran are, are all to uh, to uh, for coexistence, tolerance, acceptance, and respecting other people's faiths. Um, And so that's, I think it's reason number one. And they know that Israel is a role model for that in their society, where all religions live peacefully, they all are respected, they all worship peacefully. And so it's a good idea to partner with a country like this, especially if that country is in your region. Another reason for that is um, the understanding if that they don't stop the radical Islam the entire region will go up in flames, if not the entire Arab world, if not the West also, as we've, we, we've seen happen. And so therefore, it was a decision to, uh, to join forces together to thwart those ideas that, uh, that uh, will inflame the entire world and will destroy humanity. They understand very well that God created the world and created the mankind so they could live together in peace and in harmony. Of course, there are other reasons, including technology, science, agriculture, medicine, uh, business, software, cybersecurity, uh, military strategy. All of those are um, reasons uh, that um, got together Israel and the people in the Abraham Accord. And of course, Iran is one of the several of those reasons. That's very good that, you know, more reasons are there than just Iran, because, you know, hopefully there will be changes in Iran and then why. So it's good that these accords are based on other foundations besides a common enemy. And you're right what you said about Islam. I know that personally, my opinion of Islam radically changed after my trip to the UAE. You know, as a Jew, 
seeing all the hate and, you know, experiencing it firsthand, I, I was never against Islam. I don't believe one can hate 1.6 billion people. It's a major religion, but at the same time, you know, my notion of Muslim worshipers were those that riot on the temple mount. And I'm not going to mention names. I understand like you are in Dubai currently, but on my trip, we had met with a Sheikh who runs a fabulous museum. I'll, I'll, mention it another time. And he told us, you know, he knew that we were a Jewish group and he told us that, you know, here we're embarrassed by those people who are riding on the Temple Mount when we see that. And he said, for us, we don't even consider the Muslims because Muslims do not act like that. And, and it was like different, right? Because I remember being in Jerusalem for Shabbat during that trip back in the spring. And I literally saw the riding on the Temple Mount a week later I'm you know, observing Shabbat in Dubai. And two days later, we're in the mosque in Abu Dhabi. And it just felt so peaceful, right? I didn't know what to expect. It was my first time in a mosque. And looking around, looking around at the Muslim worshipers, I said to myself, this is real Islam. It's not what the terrorists are doing up at the Temple Mount and in other parts of, of Israel. So it, it's true. It's, it's great to actually see Islam in, in practice and see that it's not what the fringes espouse it to be. Look, I, I was invited to give a eulogy mm-hmm. on a Zayed Humanitarian Day, which was uh, the Memorial Day of Sheikh Zayed, of, uh, of blessed memory, the founder of this country. And I gave that eulogy in the great mosques, the Sheikh Zayed Mosque in Abu Dhabi, first time in history that a rabbi is giving a eulogy in that great mosque. There were over 2,000 people, and they gave me the greatest respect that uh, that any other religious leader can can receive, imam or any diplomat. And so, uh, yes, it is it is uh, here in Dubai when the UAE uh, we live the Abraham Accords, we live that coexistence, that peaceful coexistence. And, and I, I really saw that firsthand, and I encourage anyone who has any interest in even going to to the Gulf region to, to give it a chance. And so, you know, we were talking about, you know, living in coexistence, but one thing that I was really proud of Israel for doing is basing it on the reality that Jerusalem has to be recognized as the capital of Israel. Um, Can you talk a little bit more on that and maybe how important that part was that, you know, everyone who signs this has to be on board with, recognizing the capital of Jerusalem, the capital of Israel? Well, from, from my understanding is that the issue of Jerusalem is an internal uh, political issue for, of Israel hmm. uh, to tackle. And it's not uh, a, a issue that, uh, that uh, you know, is going to derail the Abraham Accords or, or the, the country's members of the Abraham Accords will, will give uh, an opinion on that. Um, so these these are discussions that will take place. As uh, from what I hear from political officials here, that look, uh, we do we agree with any country that we have diplomatic relations? Do we agree with all their policies? Certainly not. We have differences even between UAE and the US, UAE and France, UAE and England, UAE and any other country. There's never a hundred percent agreement in things. So the same thing with Israel. Do we agree everything with Israel? No, but, but we agree enough 
to establish uh, diplomatic relations. And our disagreement in one or two or three or, or few issues should not preclude us from maintaining relations, normal relations with a country that is in the region, with an advanced country, with an, a country that seeks peace. And so, so the issue of Jerusalem is left for, for Israel to handle, in a sense, in their own negotiation uh, with, with the Palestinian Arabs. It's not something that, uh, from what I understand, that the countries that are signatories to the Abraham Accord uh, will, will opine or, uh, or push for either way. And so do you, to, to that end, do you see that in the future, the Abraham Accord countries that have signed on this far, do you see them moving their embassies from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem? I think before any uh, agreement on that, uh, that move will not take place, only because uh, it's a political issue, it's a volatile issue. Uh, and since it's an issue that has not been yet resolved internationally, so to speak, uh, they probably will not do, will not do that move. But uh, on the other hand, they will. I don't think that they will uh, openly and loudly uh, uh, stake a position on to what should happen to Jerusalem. Right. That, that's fair enough. And so, of course, you know, one of the main reasons, um, you know, I'm so honored to have you on is your own incredible journey to Dubai. and. How were your relationships to the kingdom first formed? Well, uh, let me tell you first uh, briefly on how how I came here. It was uh, started like uh, 12 years ago. Uh, I was leading a uh, group uh, to Spain to discover the Jewish heritage in Spain. And as I was speaking on uh, the issue, on the topic of uh, the Abrahamic religions and the coexistence, and the exchange of uh, ideas and traditions and conversation between uh, Judaism, Christianity, and, and, and Muslim uh, uh, leaders uh, in the Andalus, in Spain, and during that era, during the era of the golden, uh, the golden era of, of Spain at that time, in which the three religions lived, lived peacefully. Uh, one gentleman who was part of my group uh, approached me and he said, you know, Rabbi, what you're saying is really fascinating. Uh, the historical background that you're giving us on, 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 on this heritage trip. Uh, I have been doing business with the UAE for over 20 years, and the leaders of that country, uh, they want to kind of recreate that environment, the three Abrahamic religions, the coexistence, the tolerance, the exchange of, of, uh, of ideas and, and, and traditions, uh, and they will be fascinated to meet you. I said that I'll be more than honored to meet them. So he said, whenever they come to New York, I will try to set up uh, meetings with you. And it happened over the years. This is this was 12 years ago. So over the years, I had the opportunity to meet several people. Some people were from government. Some people were from Emirati society. Some people were businessmen from here. And so we just exchanged ideas. We spoke. We found our common uh, ground in a sense. Uh, they came to visit me at my synagogue in, in New York, and I showed them books written by uh, Jewish sages and rabbis in Arabic, uh, books of religion, Jewish religion written in Arabic, like the books of uh, Rav Saad Gaon, who lived in the, in the 10th century. He was the Gaon, he was the chief rabbi of Egypt, of the entire Middle East. Uh, he wrote all of his translation and interpretation of the Bible in Arabic. 
Uh, Maimonides himself wrote many of his treaties in Arabic, even his most famous magnum opus in philosophy, The Guide to the Perplexed, he also wrote it in Arabic. That was the original uh, manuscript. Uh, even Rav Yosef Haim, who was the chief rabbi of Baghdad in the last century, um, he also wrote several books of halakha, of Jewish law, in Arabic. So I showed them all of those books. They were fascinated by it. And that's how we kept we kept kind of in touch. They, uh, If they had an event in New York, they would invite me to attend. Or even in Washington, I would travel there to attend. Just uh, relations of friendly relations and, and exchange of ideas and finding common grounds. Three years ago, that same gentleman um, asked me to... Uh, to find a Torah scroll, to commission actually a Torah scroll in memory of Sheikh Zayed, of blessed memory, who was the founding father of this country. And he wanted me to bring it and present it to the, to the crown prince at that time, His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, who is presently the president of the UAE. So I did so, I uh, commissioned a Torah scroll uh, and we, we put it in a case, the Middle Eastern, style of a case, the Sephardic style of a case. And we brought it in 2019. We celebrated uh, uh, with the small community that existed in Dubai that at that time was still on the quiet side, so to speak. Uh, we made a second trip because the first trip, His Highness could not uh, receive us. He had to make an urgent trip, I think, to Europe. Um, so he asked us to come back in a few months. We did come back in a few months. By the end of November 2019, he welcomed us into his palace in uh, Abu Dhabi. We had a small ceremony. He invited his family uh, to the ceremony. I gave the presentation and I had a 15 to 20 minutes private conversation with his highness. We reminisced about Lebanon. He said his parents used to take him there for, uh, for summer vacation and the heydays of Lebanon and the same town where I used to go and where my father used to be the rabbi. So we, we said, we jokingly said, maybe we, uh, we met each other in the ice cream parlor or the arcades place or the movie theater, or whatever. Uh, we spoke, we spoke then and we spoke about other, about other issues. Um, and I basically returned to New York, although I, by then I already knew that the normalization process is taking place and there will be some accords. And in fact, in our meetings, when you were at that meetings in New York, it was in between, uh, in between my trips. And it was at that time that I mentioned uh, things are going to happen because I, I already knew that things were going to happen. And nobody believed me at that meeting. Not, not, not even me. I, I was hopefully optimistic, but you know, I still had my doubts and I'm so glad that I was proven wrong. So thank you. Thank you for that. True. And so, and yeah. so, uh, so I knew things were going to happen and I returned to New York with no, uh, with nothing, just kept friendship. That's all. Once this Abraham Accord was signed, the government requested from the Jewish community here that they should register formally as a community of faith. Again, all based on the Treaty of Omar in a sense that recognized Judaism as a bona fide religion, and they could have their autonomy, their communities, and all their personal uh, status uh, uh, law will, will, will be respected. And so when the community came to register, they asked them that they need a, a religious leader, they need a rabbi to be registered as a religious community. And that's when my name surfaced. And I was asked and I, and I accepted because I felt it was a very important mission 
it's historic and uh, to me is kind of closing the circle. Mm-hmm. Here, my parents were persecuted in Syria. We had to escape Lebanon for our safety. Over a million Jews, uh, again, were either persecuted, expelled, or imprisoned in, in, in 10 Arab countries. Of course, the UAE did not exist then and did not do that. Neither Saudi Arabia did that at that time. Um, and so for me to come back, to be asked to come back, to reestablish a new Jewish community, de novo, which historically, a de novo Jewish community in an Arab country, maybe a thousand years, they have not been established. Right. They were all already existing communities. This is a de novo, a new, new community. So I felt it was very important. Historically, very important for the region, very important for me personally and my family to close that circle. I felt vindicated and now I am being welcomed back into the region. And that's why I came. And welcomed so honorably. I, I saw firsthand when we uh, were in Abu Dhabi and uh, who, who was the ambassador of Israel. Uh, you know, it was at that, I think it was a palace that we were at. And, and we just saw, you know, there was more Zionists there in that room than I meet and see here in America. So I was, I was very impressed with all the work from, from all parties. And so if you're at liberty to share, who were some of those players that you had met with before meeting ultimately with uh, the, you know, in blessed memory, the the, uh, former crown prince? Um, Who were some of those people moving along the process uh, with you and getting to the UAE? Well, uh, of course, I met with His Highness at that time was the Crown Prince, mm-hmm. Mohammed bin Zayed. Um, I met with uh, Sheikh uh, Nahyan bin Mubarak al-Nahyan, who's the Minister of Tolerance. And I met with several ministers uh, and several uh, government uh, agency heads um, that welcomed me. And of course, the community also uh, also took, you know, uh, part, took, took, took part, participated in uh, in that and uh, wherever, whoever I met, uh, and wherever I, I I I went, I was welcomed, and I was told uh, that they're very happy in the pre- my presence personally and the presence of the Jewish community, and that they would like to see a Jewish community develop and grow and feel comfortable and live peacefully here. And so, when you were just starting to form those relationships, you know, here in New York after that initial introduction. So was it really from the top levels of government that were coming here to New York to meet with you? Or was it in more incremental stages of, of relationships within the UAE governmental society? It, it, it was basically whoever was traveling to New York and, and had time we met so okay. yeah. it was it was not uh, an incremental way nor it was in a in a planned way yeah. whoever happened to be coming to new york and um and had time and uh, we could make the meeting we made the meeting and that what but that's what i mean it took over years to you know it took over years because depending some people some sometimes they were they would come once or twice a year some of them come more often and so on and so forth so it wasn't uh, kind of a diplomatic uh, uh, a diplomatic meeting. They were completely friendly meeting, uh, unofficial meeting, so to speak, uh, off the record in a sense. Uh, but that's how that's how we created the connection. And that's probably better to have it more broad based, uh, more organic, and like you said, spread over over time. 
And so you had mentioned that there already was a small Jewish community in the UAE. Could you tell us a little bit more who, who those Jews were, where they where they came from, what brought them to the UAE and what has been your biggest surprise uh, now living in Dubai, any challenges within the community, um, just a little bit more uh, details because it, it's just so fascinating. Like you said, it's the first time that a Jewish community is growing in an Arab country. Right. So there wasn't a what's called a local indigenous Jewish community here. Uh, there was never that we know. Uh, archaeologically, we were only able uh, to find um, a, a tombstone in uh, one of the emirates, Ras al-Khema, the one that is abutting the Gulf, um, of, with, with Hebrew writing. So it is believed actually to have been not of somebody uh, of a Jewish community living there, but most likely a merchant that probably came from Iraq uh, on his way to India and may have stopped in Ras al-Khaimah and passed away there. Uh, so there wasn't a, a local indigenous Jewish community mm-hmm. here. The country didn't exist, uh, you know, as a country. Um, there were, uh, there were uh, mostly uh, Bedouin tribes mm-hmm. that inhabited this, this whole region. Now, so the Jews that lived here when I came three years ago, they're known as expats, ex-patriots uh, from different countries. And uh, you have from the U.S., South America, South, America, South Africa, Europe, uh, U.K., France, Belgium, uh, Switzerland, Germany, um, uh, that, that type of, of Jews. Some people from North Africa actually living here that they passed through Europe before. And the majority of them, were mid-level employees of multinational uh, companies who, uh, as Dubai was growing and developing as a business center, as a a hub for many industries, so many of these companies, international companies, wanted to open up an office here. Uh, And so they might have asked their employees, who would like uh, to go to to Dubai? Uh, We're opening an office. You know, I would like to go. And so that type of uh, mid-level Jewish uh, uh, people came to Dubai to to be part of, to work, basically to work. That's the majority of of them. And so uh, many of them were there for from one year, two years, 10 years, 13 years, and less than that. There was only one person that I know who has been here the longest. He has been here for 41 years. He came at the age of two with his parents. His parents now left many years ago and he stayed. So he's the longest Jew that we know living in the UAE. He's almost 43, has been here for 41 years. So, um, so, so there's no real, you know, so that's what, so it's, the community is multifaceted because they come from different uh, areas of the globe come with different ideas, different, and also different level of Jewish observance. Uh, the majority of them that lived before the Abraham Accord, they were not observant at all. Uh, they, were, they felt Jewish, they're culturally Jewish, but they're not practicing Jews. And what about now, post the Abraham Accords, are you seeing a different type of demographic, Jewish demographic that's coming into the UAE, or is it still the same type no, of No, absolutely. Process? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We, we're seeing a change in demographics. First, we change, we're seeing more entrepreneurs mm-hmm. coming. 
than just mid-level employees. We've seen, seen entrepreneurs, people that, uh, that are looking to open up a business, to make a connection. And, uh, and also we're seeing more Jews that are practicing Jews because now they say, now I could live as a Jew mm-hmm. in, in the Emirates, practice my Judaism, go to synagogue, eat kosher food, have all what I need to live as a Jew. And so therefore we see a different type of demographics, people more observant Mm -hmm. and more entrepreneurs coming into the country and many Israelis entrepreneurs that are coming here. Yeah, I I met uh, several of them and actually one Israeli got hired. I'm going to butcher the name, so I'm not even going to try, but it's one of the biggest newspapers in the UAE. I I think it's called Khalid Times. Khalid Times, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. I know what you're talking about, dear friend, yes. Mm -hmm. I I was very impressed. And I actually see her articles all the time with her byline. And to me, it's just fascinating, right? You see a very Israeli name in in an Arabic newspaper. So hopefully it's just going to be the path forward for now. And so, yeah, I wanted to ask you, so what any pleasant surprises about the community, any challenges that you are facing currently? So the the good and the bad. Well, uh, um, maybe I'll start with the bad. (laughs) (laughs) It's normal, you know, the famous uh, joke, you have one uh, one Jew with two synagogues in a deserted island. You know, we Jews uh, love to be very independent, have our own mind, and we want ways, uh, things to be our way. And so Dubai does not escape that stereotype, mm-hmm. especially if you have Jews from different countries of the world, from different cultures, from different denominations, each one wants to be uh, in a place where he feels he or she feels comfortable, and they want to be uh, they want it to be their way. That's one 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 uh, negative issue. The other negative issue uh, that we have here is that you know it's like in a theater, for example, in which you have all kind of actors on stage, but there is no light, and they're all kind of waiting, and suddenly a spotlight. Mm-hmm. Is, is turned on and whoever happens to be on the spotlight becomes, becomes featured. And so you're going to see all the rest jumping into the middle in a sense or where the spotlight is mm-hmm. to claim a stake in that place in the spotlight. No, I'm going to be in the spotlight. And so unfortunately we have, we have uh, people here that they want to be in the spotlight. They want to be the leaders. They, they're looking for, unfortunately, some fame, money, and, and power, uh, and I guess historical place, place in history. Right. And so because of that, it has created certain um, uh, a race, a race to see who is going to succeed, who is going to beat the other one uh, and becoming uh, the, the community, the leader, the famous one, the person of history. So that's the bad. The good thing is uh, that that has created a, uh, a gamut of, of prayer services mm-hmm. in different uh, nosach and different denominations in different areas of the city. And so the positive aspect of that is that it created more and more places of, of uh, worship, uh, more kosher, uh, kosher uh, restaurants and availabilities, more educational uh, places, and so that created, you know, competition in a sense creates uh, creates more uh, more institutions and more things. So that's the positive part of it. 
And I saw some of that on my trip. I, I will have some off the record conversations about that. I, I feel like I saw more Jewish places there than I do here where, where I live. So to me, that was very interesting. And so you had mentioned that for you moving to Dubai and taking on these roles was such a personal honor, right? To vindicate what your family history had gone through. I was very curious, what about the rest of your family? Did it take convincing to move your family to Dubai? How, how did they react when you well, <laughs> mentioned uh, that? Right. So, so my, my family has been with me, of course, since the beginning, in a sense. Um, so as a rabbi and as a physician, uh, as a rabbi more than as a physician, I uh, had to be in different places over my career and my family always joined me. And so they kind of, my, uh, my rallying uh, troops, uh, they, uh, they uh, cheer, cheer, cheer for me, so to speak. And so they were very, very supportive. Um, they know how personal is for me this, this, this position and how of a vindication, how of closing a circle, they thought that I'm the best candidate uh, for the position that they, that they know. And so they were very, very supportive from the beginning. Um, my kids are all adults. Now they're all married. And so they have their life in the United States and in Israel. Um, and so I'm here with my wife and they come and we go. And that's how we keep in touch. And now with the Zoom and with FaceTime, uh, it's not like it used to be when my brother left Lebanon in 1965 and we, uh, you know, for a letter to come, it would take three to four months uh, for a letter to arrive. And the phone call was extremely expensive. Uh, even a telex was expensive. You had to pay per letter. And so the world has changed. And now the world is very, very close. No matter how far in the globe you are, it's just one phone call away or one FaceTime or one Zoom away. And so they were very supportive and they come and visit very often. That, that was my next question. Do they come visit often? And do they speak Arabic like, like you do? So uh, they understand, they understand many expressions in Arabic that I have taught them, but uh, they're not really conversant, I would say, in Arabic. Maybe a few more visits and they will Definitely. be a little bit more fluent. So you, we had a meeting here in New York, you and I, uh, a little while ago, and you had mentioned something very surprising to me, that you are still able to do your very brave work securing justice for the Jews who were expelled from the Arab countries. Can you tell a little bit more on how that's been able to manifest itself, you know, like living in Dubai? And so you had mentioned that the government knows what the work that you do towards that uh, effort? You know, uh, basically I tell my story and when they hear my story, they, 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 uh, they're empathized. They empathize with me and, and, and they feel the injustice that was done. And they say that was a, the greatest mistake that Arab countries could have done. Uh, they just shoot themselves uh, in, in, in the foot, so to speak, uh, because they could have had this Jewish community be part of, of, of the economy, develop the country further and bring them ahead. So I have received a lot of positive, um, positive reactions from, from the people here in the region when I speak about my story and they they all empathize with me significantly in fact the same museum that you mentioned uh, would like to have an exhibit about jews from arab countries wow yes that would 
that would be very helpful. And actually, when I was there, there was more information about the indigenousness of the Jewish population in Israel than in any Jewish museum I've been to in America. So I give a lot of praise to that Sheikh, to his team for doing so much, you know, for that part of the world and for sharing our story. Not, not many people are, are that brave out, outside of uh, even here, here in America, surprisingly. And so one of the things that you and I had a conversation about off the record, and I would love to bring it to light now, is the error in portraying that all Muslims are anti-Semites. You know, I, I think it pushes a lot of Muslims away to be portrayed as, you know, Jew haters, because not all of them are. And something that I always post about and I've written about that if all 1.6 plus billion Muslims vitriolically hated you so much, we wouldn't be here, right? Like as strong as the IDF is, it wouldn't have been able to push back against all of, of, you know, billion plus Muslims. And in my own work, I'm a Zionism educator. I have found that right now I actually have more cooperation from Muslims who are Zionists than even from some of the Jewish community, you know, educators on Israel. And they are to me like the brave ones, right? Like the, I have plenty of Muslim Zionist friends in Israel. I have uh, people reaching out to me now from Egypt, a couple of people, actually one of them who used to send me hate messages has recently asked me to share information from my website that he could use because now he wants to create a pro-Zionism page to educate his Egyptian friends. Um, when I came back and I read about my trip to Dubai, I had people reaching out to me from Bangladesh. Uh, one person from Iraq writes very pro-Israel articles and says, you know, he wishes that Iraq would be more pro-Israel, but Iran is entangled politically, you know, within Iraq. And that's what is miring efforts. And so these are Muslims. They don't have Jews in their countries. And some of them have even been to prison for, you know, defending Israel and educating about Israel. I won't ever go to prison here for, you know, speaking about Israel, at least not so far. And so I really applaud people who are pushing more of that reality, right? Like, of course, you know, yes, there's terrorism, but if we step back a little bit, in actuality, more Muslims have been killed by extremist Muslims than have any other population. So can you talk a little bit more about the need not to clump all Muslims together? Well, definitely it is a grave error mm -hmm. to think that the majority of Muslims are anti-Semites or anti-Zionists. It's mm -hmm. a grave error. It's a very small minority. The problem of minorities is that they're very loud. Yes, uh, they are. Even the minorities in the United States, in any countries, the minorities, because they are minorities uh, and they want to defend their cause, whatever that cause is, they're extremely loud. They're vulgar, they're loud, they're aggressive. And so when the other 90% of the people hear them, they think that voice is very loud and they think that that voice represents 90%. But no, that voice usually represents less than 10% of the population. So it is a grave error to think that way. There's a lot of Muslims that are uh, not just peaceful, but lovers of Israel, lovers of the Jews, agree with our position. Uh, and unfortunately, many of them, they live in countries 
that they are intimidated by that minority who's anti-Israel and anti-Semitic to even open up their mouth and speak. And as you mentioned, those who did open up their mouth and spoke against uh, anti-Semitism and against anti-Zionism, they were either imprisoned or even killed and, and, and persecuted. And so they have to be, they have to be very, very careful. I'll tell you that in my relationship with, with the, the people that live in the Emirates and not just the Emiratis, um, I have Palestinian Arabs that are dear friends. I have Jordanian ex-Palestinians. I have Syrian former Palestinians. I have Egyptians, I have Iraqis, I have Lebanese. Uh, and I have, of course, there's Moroccans and Libyans and Tunisians that are very, very, very dear friends of mine here in the Emirates. And they are all very lovers of, of the Jews, lovers of Israel, and they empathize with us and they agree with us and they want to live in peace and tranquility. And some of them that I don't even know in the street, they look at me with the kippah and they say, Shalom, welcome. We are so happy that, that, um, that, that, that you, we're living together. We are so happy for you. I, I see them in the malls. I see them in the streets. Plus all those that now have become intimate and dear friends of mine. Believe me, more than even the Jews <laughs> here in, 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 in the Emirates. And uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you open up your eyes and you realize that, that what you're fed in the West is, uh, is just the voice of the minority that is very, very loud, aggressive and vulgar. And it, it sounds very loud, but they don't represent the majority at all. And like you mentioned, right? So propaganda is very powerful. And so, you know, someone living in Gaza, someone living in Iran, for example, they go to school and they're fed on this diet of hate, you know, towards the West, towards Jews. And so even if, first of all, it's the most brave to even counterthink what you've been spoon-fed your entire life and thinking, wait, that's not right. You know, we found out this information. I'll, I'll give a great example. Uh, there's uh, Hussein Abu Bakr, who now works for MA, you know, a preeminent Jewish organization here in the States. He was teaching Hebrew because he wanted to infiltrate Israel and, you know, attack Israeli citizens. And then through his reading of Hebrew texts and in Hebrew, other books, he realized, wait, I'm not against Israel, right? I actually like the Jewish people and what I've grown up on, like you said, the propaganda in Egyptian society is wrong. And so he was imprisoned. He was beat up in prison. He escaped through help of the Coptic Christians, ended up in the States, and now writes more facts about Israel and um, Zionism than most Jewish Americans do. So I, I think a lot of good can come from those brave Muslims who have beat the propaganda that, that they've been exposed to. Definitely. I, I, I know many of them personally, their personal story. Uh, and part of that minority that is anti-Semitic or anti-Israel, unfortunately, most of them are due to ignorance, exactly. not due to, to any real deep hatred. It is because some of their leaders uh, spew hatred towards Jews and towards Israel, and they're very impressionable, especially teenager and young people, mm -hmm. and they believe them. But the moment that they educate themselves about Jews and Israel, they flip and they realize that it's a big mistake. So even the minority that is anti-Israel and anti-Semitic, most of them is because of lack of education. 
and because of ignorance. But the moment they learn, they change, as your examples that you mentioned. And it's true. And I was thinking, you know, if I were growing up in that society, I would also be very much prone to believing all that in Eastern America. All countries obviously practice forms of propaganda. It's just how extreme a country can take it. And, you know, I went to public school here in America and my opinions and, and ideas were formed by what was pushed through specific agendas as well. So we're all victims of so to say, of some form of propaganda. Oh, yeah, propaganda propaganda and disinformation and misinformation. Exactly. So one of the many reasons I wanted to have you on, first of all, your story is fascinating and what you're doing in the UAE is just exceptional. But when I came back from my trip to Dubai, you know, I donned the hijab, you know, out of respect when I went into the mosque in Abu Dhabi, I got so much pushback from my networks from people who were cheering on the Abraham Accords when they were first signed. And some of, you know, member, you know, some of my network members were saying, oh, you know, uh, the Abraham Accords were just signed, uh, you know, for the best interest of the Arab countries. And they're actually don't want much to do with Israel. They're using Israel. And I found that to be just so not true when I saw the Abraham Accords in real life, right in front of me. So could you offer some words of more of like advice and and wisdom about the reality on the ground and how that polar thinking is not helpful, right? It's not, no no one's using Israel in, in these accords. Right, right. Definitely. I think those people who see that, I think it, it, it comes from either fear mm-hmm. or disbelief. Mm-hmm. Because after all these years of seeing so much antagonism against Israel and against the Jews, incitement, hateful uh, speeches, they cannot believe the Abrahamic. They have to pinch themselves, so to speak, to see, am, am I, is this reality or not? So I think it comes from that. And also it comes from slightly, slight ignorance, lack, lack of education. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I can tell you that that's not, that's not true. The Abraham Accords is, is mutually beneficial to Israel and the countries, to the region and to the world, it's really, really to the world. Um, and of course, we need to support that and we need to, to, be, to be there. Um, many officials in this country have said that the Abraham Accords is a one-way train forward. We'll never go back. We will never go back to, to, uh, to, to what's, what was before. See, but again, are, is every individual uh, living in those countries that have signed the Abraham Accords love Israel or love the Jews or agree with the Abraham Accord? Of course not. Of course not. But um, but it's something that's going to take time to educate the rest of the population. The population, the population in the UAE respect their leaders mm-hmm. and they believe in their leaders right. and they revere them. And if the leaders have chosen that path, they support those leaders, even if some of them may disagree with that. But in other countries where the population is not like here, yeah, there might be many against it, but it's going to take time. It's going to take time to educate, if not that population, the next generation. If they educate them in the Abraham Accords, then you're going to have a whole new 
different population with different attitudes. Look, after 73 years of maligning Israel, maligning the Jews, of Israel being always the common enemy, of portraying Israel as a killer of children, as, as, as a Nazi regime, as an apartheid regime, it's difficult to erase those memories, those uh, uh, teachings that they received in 73 years just by signing a paper. Right. And so it's going to take time. It is going to take time. But the more support we get, the more people that participate, the faster the change will take place. And I saw firsthand. So we had a religious Muslim tour guide on our trip. So I went to Israel with my, uh, American friends of Magadam and Adom. And so I was having lunch, uh, you know, with, with our group, but I really wanted to have more of an in-depth conversation with our tour guide. So I kind of sat, you know, off to the side with her and she told me the truth. She said, you know, growing up, there was no Israel on the maps in the school textbooks. She thought that Israelis were killing Arab children, you know, all, all the, all the stereotypes that are, are known. But she said, as soon as the Abraham Accords was signed, because she worked for a travel agency, suddenly she was coming in contact with more Jews. Suddenly she's coming in contact with Israelis. And now her, she said her, all of her um, images of what Jews were, you know, what Jews are, what Israel is completely changed. And so she has a daughter who's a teenager. And so she said, she's very hopeful that, you know, her textbooks will have Israel and that she hopes to visit Israel herself. And every Emirati that we met on our trip, they all said the same thing. You know, we met an EMS uh, female also, you know, uh, hijabi, you know, clad. And she said the same thing. She said, I cannot wait to visit Israel. There's so many, you know, tactics for EMS that we can learn from Israel that we could share. And it was just, you know, we were on a bus and the Magen David Adom sign is a big star, red star of David. And we're just driving around with our Emirati driver. He felt comfortable driving that bus. We had no issues anywhere. Half of our group wore kippahs, you know, had high uh, necklaces and Magen David uh, necklaces. There were no issues. And, you know, of course, you know, when I go to Israel, I feel at home, right? Like that's my homeland. But when I arrived at the UAE, I felt very comfortable, right? Like I felt like that this is kind of like my extended family because in a way, you know, Arabs are our genetic cousins. And so I felt more comfortable in the UAE than I did most places ever in Europe. So to me, that, that was fascinating. Uh, I can tell you it's the safest place for Jews to live or right. to be. Same. And in two years that I have been here, I have not seen, heard of any anti-Semitic attack. Right. And just like you, right. And just like you mentioned, Jason Greenblatt uh, said in an interview just the other week that he feels he feels safer wearing a kippah in the UAE than he does anywhere in the United States, even in New York. Absolutely. Absolutely. Exactly. And so I would love to mention your film, um, Amena Amena Maine. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Just because I, I would love everyone to see it. Sure. So that's when I was telling you about bring, bringing the Torah scroll and presenting it to the to His Highness, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, in memory of his beloved father, Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Zayed, of blessed memory. The Amen, Amen, Amen is a documentary film that followed the whole uh, trajectory from beginning to end, the meaning of it and how... Uh, that is part of, of, of the change that has been taking place in the UAE for several years, from the declaring the year of tolerance 
to building the Abrahamic uh, house in Abu Dhabi, which is a campus that contains a synagogue, a church, and a, uh, and a mosque, uh, all in one campus. Um, that's part of the entire change that the region is taking. So the movie Amen, Amen, Amen can be seen, I think, in Netflix, can be seen in, on YouTube, can also is being screened at Emirates Airline uh, Travel. If you are on a plane in Emirates, look in the section of documentaries, Amen, 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 and that's where you could find the movie. So that's and that, and that is exactly where I saw it on my plane ride back from Dubai. And it was just great because, you know, I had just seen you at an event and here you are on my screen on my flight back. Nice. So it's a wonderful story. And so if you don't mind, maybe I could share the link underneath yes. this so everyone else can have you can Definitely. see it and learn from it. And it's just such a wonderful, touching story. So thank you so much for your time. I, I know you're very busy. And this was just such a great conversation to have. And hopefully our audience, both Jewish and non-Jewish, could learn a lot more about what, what in reality is, is happening on the ground. Yeah, my pleasure. It was really a pleasure to spend this time with you and, and hope to uh, continue working together and advancing this, uh, this new era that we live in. And hopefully I will see you soon. So I will be back in the Middle East, uh, November through December. We're going to Dubai, Oman, uh, Jordan, and uh, we are ending the trip with uh, the UAE. Wonderful. We will, we'll contact you. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Thank you. Thank you.